What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hello, everyone, and welcome to So Very Wrong About Games, a board gaming podcast about board games. With me is my co-host, Michael Walker. How you doing, Walker? Hello. And I am Mark Bigney. And we apologize for having been absent last week. There were some very serious emergencies. I am not too proud to admit that I was willing to pander to the internet and their demands. And what does the internet demand, Walker? Cats. Cats. Pictures of cats. And so, naturally, we I, I was not going to announce that we were going to be gone without photographic evidence of the official swag cat... Chandler, a.k.a. The Potato. A.k.a. The Chan Man. He, he has many names. He's a cat of many identities. How is how is Potato doing, Walker? Doing much better. He's very eager to get on the mend. Unfortunately, he's now missing a hip joint. But other than that, he is doing very well. Apparently, it's a very common thing, so do not fret. Uh, really? If it's a common thing, why does it cost as much as a car? Uh, well, because even though it's common, it's still a big procedure. I'm okay. just glad he's fine, and that's that. Yes, the walker had to decamp to where there was a feline osteopath. Now, make no mistake, this is someone who does osteopathy on felines. This is not a cat who will fix your bones. All that, I would like to see. At any rate, this is a board gaming podcast. We're going to talk about board games this week. We're going to talk about the games we played last week, the news, and why it doesn't matter. And then our feature game. Our feature game is the one, the only. Raw, raw. He's a sun god. He's a fun god. He's raw. Walker. <laughs> What'd you play last week? Let's get through a bunch of stuff that we talk about a lot of and doesn't really need to be gone to in depth. Don't Lama Dice. Tapple. Scout. Played all of those. All of those were great. Tapple is life. Scout is designed by Kay Kajino and put out by Oink Games. And Don't Llama Dice and Siege of Rundar is designed by Reiner Knizia. Quick note on Siege of Rundar. I've talked about the special place on the shelf, Mark, that's really far at the back. 
So you forget about the game. So you really like it, but you don't want to play it for a long time. See, Jerundar will now get pushed very far. <laughs> we actually played it twice in a row. Oh, wow. Yeah. Uh, we had we had Dr. Stallone in for two weeks. So there was a lot of extra gaming when I could being done. But he wanted to play it again immediately. So I, I've I've sieged of the Rundar very thoroughly and I'm done for quite a while. Yes, fair enough. And Siege of Rundar is, uh, for all its virtues, it doesn't have much of an arc. I mean, the, de- the decks escalate in terms of the orcs. But mostly there's a flood of orcs and you need to dig. And that's more or less the way that goes. Especially since you can jump to the advanced items immediately. There's no notion of having to exhaust the crappy items before going for the big ticket items. So I can imagine that two sessions in a row would, would definitely satisfy any Rundar urges for the foreseeable future. It's true. Similarly, in games that we've talked a lot about in the show, especially recently, uh, Dr. Stallone is a big fan of Radiant Offline Battle Arena, so got to play another session of that. And this is a review copy we got from the publisher. And the great thing about Radiant, there's been some discussion. Charlie Thiel wrote a very good article about this. The, the difference between a variable setup and variable play experiences. Sometimes you can have one without the other. And obviously, if you've got 20 different special characters, but they all feel the same, it's not going to do you a whole lot of good. In the case of Radiant, you do actually have a variety of different characters from which to draft. And the tempo and pace and structure of a game can vary considerably. Like just in the past few weeks, I've had games where there was a death of one of the characters on turn one, and I've seen games where there were hardly any deaths over the course of the entire game. It was all more about maneuvering and posturing. And sometimes that's good play, sometimes that's bad play. I've seen a lot of different play states emerge in Radiant, and that is a very, very pleasing thing to see on top of all the variable special powers. So very much enjoyed Radiant. Similarly, played Sakura Arms. This is the level 99 version in theory, but we played the Japanese version with the fan-made paste-ups, which is marvelous. But I will note, and this is more props to level 99 than it is any implied or explicit criticism of the fan community of Sakura Arms, there was a timing ambiguity in the fan-made version that level 99, in their translation, sidestepped, which, good for them. They made it clear as to what the timing was in the officially translated version. So, excellent job on that. And Sakura Arms, I would also put in the same category as what I said about Radiant. You have a lot of different characters, and you also have a lot of different play styles that those characters allow you to engage in. And indeed, in Sakura Arms, many of the special characters give you entire new sub-mechanisms, and that, that's very much the preference of Dr. Stallone. He played with a little sideboard and moving special tokens around and engaging in weird nonsense. I engaged in my traditional style of play, which is to engage in denial and endurance, which is one of the things that one of the reasons why Walker loves playing two-player dueling games with me. And uh, those those are some two-player classics. Additionally, we played Blitzkrieg, World War II in 20 Minutes. This is another review copy we got from PSC Games, and this is by Paolo Mori. We love a lot of the work of Paolo Mori, and we've commented before, Blitzkrieg feels an awful lot like Dogs of War, the two-player version. Except here, you have even more fronts to concern yourself with and care about what's happening when and knowing that if you take your eyes off of a certain theater for long enough, you may not ever be able to recover. Or in some cases, it's about strategically stopping the bleeding. Anyway, there's a lot of interesting elements going on in Blitzkrieg World War II in 20 minutes. And I do think that it is an excellent distillation of what was already an excellent design. And of course, I will remind listeners that there is the hope of a Dogs of War 2nd Edition or something approaching that in some sometime in the future, and that would be a wonderful, wonderful thing to see. Also, more on sort of Blitzkrieg in the news as well. 
Absolutely. Uh, finally, in terms of just sort of a, a, a encapsulating games we've been talking a lot about lately, Tapu was life, played Green Team Wins. However, I would like to note, I went and got my own copy of Green Team Wins. I felt it was a serious lacuna in my game library, and I thought that it was important to have presence of Green Team. Otherwise, because if you don't have Green Team Wins, you're on the orange team. And that's... That's the losing side, Mark. You just can't, can't no. bear it. Yeah, at that point, why bother? However, the version that I have is the Goliath version. This is the one that's available in big box stores and big box retail. I did not know. that, the, And it is not explicitly mentioned on the page in BoardGameGeek, and I think that people need to know this. The Goliath mass market retail version tops out at six players. That is not as... Yeah, it... Well... Given that Green Team thrives on larger player counts, I'm not sure that that's a great package to recommend. I mean, five and six are pleasant. We've even played it with four. But at that point, you're pushing it. Honestly, it shines at higher numbers, and it can easily accommodate double digits. It doesn't take any more time to do that, really. And the 25th Century Games version, which is the version that I, to which I was first exposed, goes up to 12 which is a much better package. Twice as many dry erase markers to dry out, twice as many player boards. Now, could you easily, with cell phones, pads and papers, whatever, stretch your copy of Green Team Wins to effectively an infinite number of players? Probably. Is this a thing that I'd be tempted to do when and if there's ever a gathering of enough swaggers together and play like a 50-person game of Green Team Wins? Absolutely! However... There, it wouldn't be perfectly clean by virtue of the fact that you do need to track who's on the green team versus the orange team, so it's not just about writing that message. Anyway, suffice to say, caveat emptor, the Goliath version, although very good and green team wins is a fabulous experience, allows for half the participants of the 25th century games version. Let it be known. We got to get Imperium the Contention back to the table. This is by Gary Dworsky and put out by Contention Games. These are the same people that are working on Slay the Spire at the moment. And I think this is my most favorite, my best, my most enjoyable game of Imperium the Contention so far. It was mostly because everyone understood the tension and the reason to put pressure on everyone at the same time and not let anyone sort of get away with turtling in their own corner. Is that why everyone attacked me? Yes. Okay. Just so. Just wanted to make sure. That's what made it great. (laughs) (laughs) This is the... I've been meaning to try it with more than four players for a while. I've played Imperium the Contention 2, 3, and 4 a lot. And I've never played it with five or six. And I'd always wondered in the back of my head whether it would move at the same brisk pace. I hoped that it would. And it does. It was very quick, just like all games of Imperium the Contention. And it didn't get bogged down in terms of resolution or, you know... A and B and C all getting tangled up together in some sort of mess. There were lots of multi-party fights, and there was lots of border uh, pushing borders in all kinds of different directions, but the resolution was a dream. And so it, I can now unreservedly recommend Imperium the Contention at pretty much any player count, including solo. I truly rarely do find a game that is that quick, that approachable in terms of games density, and simultaneously that flexible in terms of player count, all in a tiny little box. Yeah, so, that, that has re- replayability because they have so many different factions to play and they all play very much They feel very, very differently, yes. And sometimes there's a lot of keywords, but other than that, I think it plays very well. That is Imperium, the contention. Got to play two games of Ankh, Gods of Egypt. It was a good week, a good couple weeks for Ankh, Gods of Egypt. Again, got to play two players and then played a four-player game. And they both worked out very differently. So this is the classic game explainer's dilemma, Walker. 
where you have to lay out all the parameters, or at least the way I do, when you're giving a comprehensive rules overview, you lay out all the parameters, but sometimes you have to acknowledge that some things you've never seen before. For example, in the case of Ankh, after a certain conflict event, any player that has not scored enough points gets eliminated from the game. I have never seen that happen. I've seen it happen now. Really? <laughs> so this was a case where I explained, yeah, that that doesn't tend to happen. But both of us in the two-player game got eliminated because I fought to a draw. <laughs> After the second or third conflict event, it became clear that I was not in a position to win. And so I realized that it, that there, there could be a fascinating deviation from the normal two-player game logic. Normally in a two-player game, if you score a point, that's exactly the same as my losing a point or vice versa. But in the context of Ankh, it isn't that way. In multiplayer games, largely by virtue of the merge mechanism, more on that in a moment. And in two-player games, because of this weird corner case. And again, I was I was ahead after the first conflict event, I think. And then after two and three, I, I started uh, falling behind and I didn't really see a way out. And so I realized, okay, what if I just deny my opponent points? I think maybe we'll both fail to get out of the red. And then it's a draw. And a draw is better than a straight loss. And that's exactly what happened. It was glorious. My opponent took a variety of powers that increased his scoring potential by winning battles. And so I just denied him battles. I just retreated from any area where he would show up. And we were both in our own little corners scoring very small quantities of points. I feel better about that draw than most wins I've had over the course of my gaming career. So it was it, it was fascinating. And again, showing new layers to a design, even after you've played it dozens of times, is a glorious discovery. And again, those moments when you realize, yeah, the designer thought of that. Eric Lane <laughs> has been able to anticipate that, and that rule exists for a reason. I'm not going to say that, that necessarily uh, systems of this complexity can have the same degree of forethought as simpler, tighter Euros. But for a sprawling game of special powers, Ankh is shockingly tight, and those little corner rules exist for a reason. So hats off to that. The other game we played, similarly, somewhat of a, an unanticipated end because the middle two players were jockeying for position trying to avoid the merge because they both didn't want to engage in the merge. They thought that it was a losing proposition. And so neck and neck, the merge was avoided by one of the players by a single point. And then he watched in horror as the merged gods started rocketing up the score track with an incredible degree of ferocity. It was one of those instances where all players were sitting there thinking, oh, I don't want to be involved in the merge. But then a few turns later, they're like, oh, yeah, the merged god is doing really well. And one of the players, this is his first exposure to the merge mechanism, about two or three turns in, he's like, oh we have a considerable tempo advantage. We can do whatever we want. I'm like, yeah, that's that's kind of why the merge god exists. It was great. I love God, Gods of Egypt. I stand 100% behind our naming it Game of the Year in 2021. It continues to delight. My only, only downside to Ankh is that I sprung for a massive all-in organizer crate thing that is way too complicated to put back together at the end of a game. But other than that, Ankh Gods of Egypt is wonderful. My underlying message, though, I will repeat this. I said it during the review, and I've emphasized this. A number of listeners have reported appreciating this feedback. Don't do what I did. Retail is enough. The variety in Ankh doesn't so much come from the Guardians and the different gods, although those are nice. It comes primarily from the different powers that players purchase over the course of the game. Don't fear the FOMO. Don't worry about it. Ankh retail. Go and live your best life. Ankh Gods of Egypt by Eric Lang. We did a couple streams 
in the last couple of weeks as well. The first stream was Seal Team Flicks, which is a review copy with the sort of uh, Phantom Division coming up on GameFound and then and then coming off. We thought it would be great to sh- sort of showcase that sort of game design. So this is designed by Pete Ruth and Mark Thomas, and it was put out by WizKids. And you play sort of a, a SEAL team infiltrating sort of terrorists taking over airports or subway stations or hospitals, you know, take your pick and it's a flicking game where you're shooting the bullets you know you move your uh seal member around uh via a square grid and movement points and then when you fire your guns you're actually flicking discs and taking out the enemies there's mini games to defuse bombs to uh opening doors to sniping all sorts of very interesting things love seal team flicks glad we got to play it again there's a reason why we call it the only game that matters no game has replicated that precise balance of strategic stealth and visceral fun of flicking with the ridiculous toy factor of these absurd mini games and it's marvelously inventive held back largely by a couple of production missteps and some rules ambiguities in errata and i highly encourage anyone who has tried to play the game and it didn't quite work or been curious about it to check out the stream because I, I do the be- I'm not going to say that it's perfect, but I try to give uh, a comprehensive rules explanation that flags the difficulties that a lot of people go into, particularly with respect to sentries and how they behave and what alertness means. Spoiler alert, alertness doesn't really matter, net net. And I, I, I hope that this will serve as an introduction. A number of listeners asked us to do this, and it took us far too long to do it. Next up on the, the, the block for a full rules explanation on video is... Doer of the Lesser Houses by Devious Weasel Games. We'll get to that soon. But Seal Team Flex is an underappreciated gem of hobby gaming, and I was very, very glad to go back to it. Yep, three-dimensional walls, so you're doing bank, st- bank shots around the corners, all sorts of cool stuff. You're upgrading your team, you're getting new weapons that all have different abilities. And it does a pretty good job of letting you jump into later scenarios as well. You know, it's no Oathsworn. It doesn't have like the same freedom, that, but, but the, the campaign system is admittedly more stripped down anyway. So, you know, I, I, I love Seal Team Flicks, wonderful experience, but you have to be aware of uh, some of the errata and how to run the enemies properly. It's, re- it's real easy once you get down to it, but as I say, minor rulebook errors kind of held it back. Play the game of Cosmic Frog Find Muck. This is the expansion to Cosmic Frog, another so very wrong about games game of the year. This is a review copy of the expansion sent to us by the publisher, Devious Weasel Games. And uh, having played Find Muck now around three times, I'm starting to solidify my view of it. And that is that I kind of wish it were presented as a modular expansion, because at the end of the day, I think that it is. I think it's one of those things where you can kind of take or leave various elements. Because all told, I think it's a little too much. I think it's a question of... Once you start introducing that many tools into a player's toolbox, you're kind of losing sight as to the core experience and, to a certain extent, by virtue of the sheer variety of options available, it doesn't improve the play experience. It just causes people to shutter off a variety of tools until such time as some jerk lands on their face to use them, and then it might lead to some hurt feelings. So, what does the Find Muck expansion introduce? One thing that it introduces is an alternate combat resolution mechanism. Instead of using the dice, you can use chips. And to the designer's credit, 
in the tiny Find Muck expansion box. Not only is it the case that there are these actual poker chips and a full new set of ability cards to use those chips for the chip resolution system, there's also a complete other set of ability cards to use with the old dice system and bonus extra spare dice in the expansion box, which I think is going above and beyond in terms of value proposition in terms of components. I think if you're the kind of person who reads designer diaries of people like Bruno Fiduti, who talks about, ooh, the double think involved, and you put the card face down, and you flip it up simultaneously, you say, this is my six, and you look deep into the other person's eyes, and you start to squirm and wonder. I am not that gamer. I just, I'm, I never have been, right? But there are some people who absolutely adore it. That kind of, of mechanism whereby you select a card and you play it face down, it's a fine way to do things. You know, the combat system in Scythe, the combat system in Dune, the combat system in Lord of the Rings, the confrontation. It's a fine way to do things, but I, I don't regard it as a moment replete of, with tension, psychology, and mind games. Some gamers do, clearly. People in the Bruno Fiduti mold. For them, the chip resolution system might be revelatory. For me, I tried it a couple times. I don't think I'm going to go back to it, to be frank. Uh, I And our group just isn't working that way. I tried. I tried to set the stage... I tried to serve a good example, but they didn't bite. And quite frankly, I'm not surprised. The new abilities are wonderful. Mental combat, great. If for no other reason, the mental combat teaches you more about the digestive system of the two-mile-high giant cosmic frogs in the, the Reina. Namely, in addition to disgorging, you now have purging. Exactly. From the gullet. Right from the gullet. Right. It's, it's a beautiful cosmic dance as the savannah they swallowed arcs over your head in a beautiful trajectory, and then you snap it out of the t- out of the air with your giant cosmic frog tongue. Because if it's good enough to be eaten once, then it's just good to be eaten <laughs> twice, right? Yeah, if you're a fan of pre-digested terrain, then it's absolutely the way to go. So that that alone is enough to make sure that it keeps traction in, in players' minds. So that I'm, I'm very happy with. Then there are the muck lands, which, again, I keep trying. They're really powerful, but they're so situational and weird and requires a certain, like, setup. And... As a consequence, they've been underused. I'm going to keep trying. I'm going to keep throwing myself at this challenge because I adore Cosmic Frog. The local group loves it too. Everyone's more than willing to frog at any given moment. But I wonder if Mucklands are just the one Cosmic Frog leap too far. If it's just the tiny little ribbit past what's acceptable, and maybe you should just slipstream back into what you're comfortable with. If you know Cosmic Frog terminology, this is gold. This is yeah, sheer yeah, gold. Just yeah. record it, prepare it for my award reel. Yeah, once you've played it, come back, listen. Yeah, yeah. Oh my God, you'll laugh. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Walker. I appreciate the vote of confidence. So, Cosmic Frog, I do think, is improved by the Find Muck expansion, even for first time players. But I'm not sure that the whole kit and caboodle absolutely at once is the way to go about doing it. And I'm probably going to keep experimenting with the different things that are available. It ends up feeling like a modular expansion, even though it isn't presented as such. And I am definitely willing to put up with some of the additional rules grit of the Mucklands, even though they, they, they tend to be underused, by virtue of, again, the, the joy of experimentation. There are these lovely sandboxes that, that Devious Weasel presents us with. And j- just because I haven't found much joy in all the corners yet doesn't mean I won't in the future. So, more to follow probably on Cosmic Frog Find Muck by Devious Weasel Games. My understanding is that it will be launching at Gen Con. Should I say leaping at Gen Con? Regurgitating into Gen Con. <laughs> That, that doesn't sound as appealing from a commercial perspective. Well, we've already talked about 
Dr. Sloan enjoying card battlers, so he wanted to try Mindbug Beyond Evolution, also a review copy designed by Saf Akis, Richard Garfield, Marvin Hagen, and Christian Kudile. This is published by Nerdlad Games, and it is a battler one deck. You have a deck of a bunch of cards, you deal 10 to each player, they have a hand of 5, and then you're instantly at it. You're either putting a card out, attacking with a card, or using an action on the card. The The new evolution system means if a card sort of survives longer or does certain things, it gets to evolve into something else. It is a fantastic sort of figure out what is the best way to hit your opponent for three lives before they kill you and all sorts of interesting combinations and ways you can use the tons of different keywords tons of different actions i enjoy mind bug every time i play it for what it is i want to try the evolution mechanism because especially since what the designers have been doing in terms of leveling up cards they've been experimenting with that in a number of other different card games i'd be interested to see how it works on the mind bug system because i i will say uh, the simplicity and purity of Mindbug's rule set is very impressive. Keywords notwithstanding. But of course, keywords are, are the spice that, that, that give variety to such games anyway. Another sort of battle that we played was Nirishima Hex, the year of the Moloch. And we want to try the new, the two newest factions that come out. Uh, Nirishima Hex is a game, it says it plays up to five. It's a two-player game where you have a choice of dozens of different factions. The two new ones are Beasts and Pirates. Probably not the two best ones to play against each other. Uh-huh. Beasts uh, have the unfortunate drawback of attacking everything that's around them. So you're placing these tokens on this hex grid, and either you play a battle token or the grid fills up, and then there's a fight. All these things about initiative and range and, and all these other things happen. But the Beasts, unfortunately attack everything that's around them, which means even friendlies, which normally would be a problem, except for the pirates, they actually use the outer ring of the board, like not even the normal, where you can normally not even put oh my pieces. Goodness. And they sort of float around the outside. Some of their pieces go in the middle, but a lot of them are just like sort of ship things that coast along the outside. Like every time there's a, uh, a battle, they all move around clockwise. So that's very interesting. And then, you know, shooting cannons and grappling hooks. All of that is very interesting. I enjoyed playing them, but like the team up against the beasts who now had open rain in the middle and could space out and, and not worry about right. killing each other. Not the greatest thing, but always enjoy Nushima Hex by Portal Games. Got to show Walker Robotech Reconstruction. This is by Dr. Witz at Strange Machine Games. This is a review copy we got from the publisher. And uh, everyone at the table, I have to say, is very, very tolerant of my steadfast unwillingness to use proper names for people. Uh, they say, who's this? Uh, I, I talk about, well, you can move Hikaru over there. And they're like, who's Hikaru? And it's like, okay, fine. The game calls him Rick. But anyway, that's yeah, just me don't, being... You don't even care about that part either. Oh, you mean the guy that's white and red, that guy there? Okay. Yeah, fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> well, usually, the thing is, is that Robotech Reconstruction takes place during a very, very particular point, right? It's, it's a post-war scenario. And so usually some amount of setting the stage is necessary, in my defense. Now, does that mean that I should subject all the players to the 55-minute PowerPoint deck that I prepared about Macross before every game? Uh, absolutely. So I, I apologize for nothing. So Walker, what did you think of Robotech Reconstruction? I loved it. It really gave me, I, I want to say it gave me a PAX feel. Only because there's all sorts of different ways people can win and you need to constantly track them. They do oh, a great job enough. of the sideboard tracking them for you. But just that sort of interaction with all the sides and having all sorts of different victory conditions and how they play off of each other just gave me that sort of feel. And 
it had just a better theme, right? Other than just the typical, you know, you know, <laughs> you know old time Mediterranean <laughs> themes, right? This was sort of like, you know, giant robots, you know, anime that, you know, we all grew up with and easy to follow, like not so, you know, abstract as they are in the other PAX games. It was like, you need to control this many cities, right. you need to have this many things. And they all sort of intertwined with each other, all sorts of different actions everyone could do. Very interesting. Well, the the more natural comparison class, I think, I, I think your comparison with the PAX games is is very much on point. But I think the more natural comparison class is with the coin games by GMT, the counterinsurgency games. This is, after all, a game about counterinsurgency. But one of the key ways in which I prefer Robotech Reconstruction to any of the coin games that I've played, and I've played about three or four of them, is precisely because the victory conditions, although varied, are transparent. And the consequences of your actions are also transparent. They're not buried under a series of conditionals and obtuse corner cases. It's like, okay, well, how does this faction win? Well, it depends on whether or not you've reached round three and or this city has converted to its second stage. If they haven't, then etc., etc., etc. Volko Rinke loves conditionals like that. It's also how he designs his solo bots. Uh, it's not my style of play. This isn't about rules complexity necessarily, but if you're going to have complexity in your rules, have them be in options for the players to engage with the system, kind of like how Cosmic Frog does things, not in terms of figuring out who's winning. Because in Robotech Reconstruction, yes, all the goals are radically at odds with each other, and indeed, we, we brushed up against things whereby the notional partners were in serious trouble because they had to pursue their own conditions without helping their partners too much. Yeah, that this whole partners thing was very interesting. Yes. And... Partners and, is very much in yes, quotes. In quotes, but there is definitely an interaction there that you want to help each other out. Yes. So, for example, my faction, my income was largely determinate, or at least my base income. I, most of my income over the course of the game I actually got by stealing stuff. I was the insurgent faction. But my base income is entirely determined by the amount of real estate that my quote-unquote partner is holding. But if my partner is holding too much real estate, they are just going to win. And similarly, I have to hold some real estate that's far more focused. So I was in the same position that the quote-unquote government faction was in, whereby, okay, we need to project force, but we can't project force in new areas because then our partner's going to win. So we have to project force in areas we already control because controlling too many areas is bad. So those trade-offs I thought were delicious. And like many games of this ilk, I have the same question with respect to counter most games about counterinsurgency as they do about lots of other heavily asymmetric games, which is, was it the case that all factions at least had some moment when their victory was plausible? With players of roughly equal skill, I think this is an important thing for the sake of the game's narrative, if nothing else. Uh, to say nothing of player satisfaction. And this game of Robotech Reconstruction, we absolutely were in a position where everyone threatened victory at various points of the game. Now, I will point out once again my uh, criticism of Reconstruction, which is that the Insurgent Faction doesn't feel to me at all like an Insurgent Faction, because they are the slow and steady, incremental gains cannot be assailed faction, whereas the Government Faction, which still seems the hardest one for me to be, the, the RDF, they have to keep plates spinning in the air, and then when they're spinning just right, they then have to hope that nobody else undoes any of their work for the remainder of the round, which is asking for a lot, and they feel far more like, you know, opportunistic, time-based capitalizing that I would associate more with lesser powerful factions. Anyway, other than that, 
Those are those are two quibbles I have with Robotech Reconstruction. Other than that, I think it's a marvelous execution of the theme. I think it's very engaging, even for people that don't have any connection with the theme. And it's it's by far the best coin game that I've ever played. If you leave Root out of the picture, which is less of a coin game, slightly more of a troops on a map game. Yeah, and I think unfortunately it, it does suffer from first play syndrome, right? I think you'll get so much more out of a second play. Yes, and I think you'll get a lot more if this is a game that your group plays more and more. Yes, I am now in a position of trying to rectify some of the component problems with Robotech Reconstruction because the token, it's it's an admirably small box. Kudos to the publishers. I think that's great for A, keeping costs down, which benefits everybody, and B, for gamers with larger collections, having small boxes is wonderful. But control of various territories isn't as easy to eyeball as I would like. That is easily solved with some red or yellow cubes. And that is just a function of, of my cannibalizing it from some other lesser game in order to do so. That is Robotech Reconstruction, published by Strange Machine Games. Mark was nice enough to introduce us to a game called Challengers. Thank you for putting the exclamation like point that, into it. Yeah. yeah, I appreciate that. That this was solid broadcasting. Designed by Johannes Kramer and Marcus Slavischek and put out by One More Time Games. Maybe not one more time. <laughs> so this was... I see what you did there. So there was a giant... There's this big, you know, award thing in Germany that people seem to care about. The Kennerspiel des Jahres, which is the the game of the year for the connoisseur or for the... So, yes, this was for the children's game, Mark. <laughs> I would be behind this 100%. Sure. sure. This is not. This is for the gamer's game. Well, and, uh, ooh, it's tough, though. That, that's the thing. Translating Kennerspiel is, is complicated. And, well, there's always this controversy, right, whenever yes, they announce their winners. of course. So this is a great game. Let's pretend that you really like Millennium Blades, and you have a five-year-old that you want to teach Millennium Blades to. This would be a fantastic intro game for children to work them up to Millennium Blades. You are... That's a solid comparison. You are constructing these decks and then you are warlike flipping off the top and going against each other with very basic wind condition, basic wind conditions and, and rudimentary combos that might occur depending if you shuffled your deck right or not. Yes. Well, I will say that at least challengers makes transparent the luck of the draw inherent in deck construction games. Because I've been saying this for years. Dominion is far more luck dependent than people give it credit for based on how you draw and when you draw and how your currency clumps and, and what have you. You know, Magic Magic the Gathering, at least everyone acknowledges that land distribution is very can be very deterministic in terms of your victory. But for some reason, Dominion largely gets a pass. Uh, Challengers is very, very straightforward. You know, you reveal the card that says, do this thing to your bench. It's like, oh, my bench is empty at the moment. It's like, oh, all sucks to be you. Should have taken a different card. That's fine. It's kind of the nature of the beast. I will say this. Challengers is cute. It has two things going for it. Number one, it is cute. At the point where, and this is literally something that happened, I flip over the rubber ducky. The rubber ducky teams up with the dog and beats your T-Rex. Okay, now my rubber ducky holds the flag. Your turn. There's something to be said about that, first of all. It's true. How my, how far that gets you, your mileage may vary. The second thing I will point out is that it scales up to eight effortlessly. Now, you do have some musical chairs to, to go on with. The way that the game works is there are seven rounds, and in every round you'll be engaged in a two-player, very, very, very quick card battling game, which is more or less like war, as Walker identifies. <laughs> more or less. That's being perhaps a little bit uncharitable, but not too uncharitable. 
and you might be expected to play with someone across the table. So you're supposed to get up and sit across from someone at the appropriate lane and what have you. And some people find that fine. I find that fine because I've been, uh, I'm well accustomed to years of playing Loop and Louie tournament ver- version and the tournament rules as established by, our, by a friend of the show, Woogie. You have to get up and change seats so as to maintain balance of where you're sitting next to whom. Some people, though, regard this as incredibly onerous. And the moment the gamer sits down, they refuse to move. <laughs> but uh, yeah. would I have given true. it to Kennerspiel? No. I, 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 I <laughs> was surprised at the, at the pushback it got. We, we, we were going to play a large game. I floated it on the, a larger the, game the, table. The, the but... moment that, <laughs> that it was suggested that you might have to stand... Yeah. No, we're not. It was immediately yeah. rejected. Yeah. <laughs> nope. Yep. Nope. <laughs> Which is fine. People have preferences. I, I yep. learned I learned something new that day, and it was a valuable lesson. Would I have given it the Kennerspiel? No. Would I have would I have given it the Kennerspiel over Iki and Planet Unknown? Certainly not. But it's charming enough and inoffensive. It is a fine party game. I would put it very much in the same class as Green Team wins. <laughs> Agreed. <laughs> Yeah, see, the people are going to say, oh, there's, it's, well, it's building your deck and choosing the right. I'm just like, you're going to draft some early cards and you're just going to look through, you know, your five next cards. It's like you're looking for a symbol. It's like, yeah, it's got that symbol. And I'm looking for that symbol. I'm not even going to look at the rest of the card. I'm going to take that symbol. Yeah, it, the, it, there, are, there are rudimentary combos to be done. Yeah. And you do get the pleasure of triggering little combos if you draw the cards in the right order. But honestly, it's pretty fleeting, and, and there's a little bit of decision of when to call your deck out and sort of yes, and and get it down to those key cards. But then you might run out of cards, so there's also like having a very large deck as opposed to having a, a shorter, a smaller yes. deck. Lots yes. of different things to think. Yeah, but in the end, yeah, very the, unrewarding. There's a fundamental trade-off in terms of constructing your deck because it is during deck construction that 100% of your choices uh, take place. Between a thicker deck, which can theoretically last longer, but the problem is you can only suffer so many casualties over the course of, of a given match. The The trick is, though, every time I was in a position of acknowledging those trade-offs and trying to play in response to them, the pressures were interesting, but your response to those pressures are, are, are less so because, again, so much is about the order in which you pull your cards. So there's this card that, once it's killed, has a support ability. How good is that card? I don't know. Where's it going to be in my deck? So, and that, and that it itself is not a thick deck versus thin deck problem, because if it's a thin deck, I still care where it is. If it's coming out near the end, it's still a problem. So Mark, you're not shuffling right. Oh, oh, that might be my problem. You know you're going to be told that. Yeah. So and that's Challengers by Johannes Kraninger and Marcus Slavacek. Honestly, if you play with a uh, very, very, very light gamers and you frequently need something for six or eight players, eh, there's room for it. It's good for for a couple of go rounds. Those are those are not trivial virtues, but uh, as as we would say in Pride and Prejudice, not handsome enough to tempt me. I make a few of these short because man oh man, we played a lot of games. We played a game called we streamed it just last week called Heaven and Ale. This is a Michael Kiesling, Andreas Schmidt game uh, put out by Eggerspiel, and it is just a giant sort of rondel game. You're going around this giant rondel. You are building your sideboard of of uh, ingredients, ingredients, usually. and you're trying to surround these different sheds because once it's surrounded, you get to put a shed in depending on the values of the thing around it. 
and then you're scoring points. It's a big trade-off of where to stop on the rondelle because there are purple scoring markers that are going to run out by the end of the game and you're not going to score a bunch of extra actions that you're going to get. There's also these barrel rewards in the middle that you have to decide, well, should I get this now? Are you going to track what everybody has to figure out, you know, the best time to do that? It was fine. Oh. I, I would play it if someone suggested it. I would never suggest it myself. But it was interesting. I definitely want to play it one more time. You know, the figuring out, because you're when you pick a tile, it's, it's simply you have to pay the cost that's on that tile that you want. So if it's a six grain, you pick $6. Unless you want to put it on your light side. Your board is divided exactly in half. Light side, dark side. Double the cost if you want on the light side. So it's this interesting trade-off. You know, do I, am I going to fill my dark side and, you know, get those combos off early so I get the engine moving so I can afford the light side, stuff like that. But the dark side is what gets you money. The uh, light side is what moves all your ingredients, ingredients up. up the track and has this weird, not weird, it's a, a big scoring mechanism at the end. I played Heaven and Ale at the last shucks a listener was kind enough to teach to me. I was very pleasantly surprised. I was not expecting much, especially since it kind of landed with a bit of a thud in terms of the overall market. Uh, but I was very, very pleased with how the, the, the rondelle worked. I was very pleased at how tight the cash management was in terms of the trade-offs that, that forced. I, th I thought it was a very, very pleasant. And despite the fact that it's difficult to explain in its entirety in a brief synopsis, it nonetheless feels very simple and straightforward in terms of, again, emphasizing those trade-offs while you're actually playing it. Uh, so I seem to have a, a much better time of it than you, than you did for what it's worth. Yeah, I didn't mind it. It's, I guess if you like that sort of constantly being under the gun and having no resources. Having yes, it is make... very money tight. Yes. yes. But nonetheless, you're able to do things. I mean, seldom is it the case that you look at the board, because yes, there, there are euros where I've complained before that the money tightness makes it so difficult to get anything done. In the context of Heaven and Ale, you're able to get things done. You just have to be careful about it. So I, I felt that the tight economy was very well calibrated, which is hardly to be surprised, hardly surprising given the designer's pedigree. We got to play Knight of the Ninja. This is designed by Justin Gary and published by Brotherwise Games. Justin Gary is of Stoneblade Entertainment. He of Ascension and of Shards of Infinity fame. More on that later. And Knight of the Ninja pitches itself as a relatively light social deduction-ish game. And I would like to issue a very, very blunt distinction between two kinds of social deduction games. There are social deduction games that get by on the fundamental structure of voting and information leaking through the system based on actions and declarations. I would put the resistance in that category. I would also put... Secret Hitler in that category, even though I'm not a fan of Secret Hitler as much anymore. And then there are social deduction games that are driven primarily by action cards. And in this, I would absolutely put Knight of the Ninja. And I have yet to encounter one of those that I find particularly enjoyable. I thought it was okay as a party game. Uh, there are some inferences you can make. You don't know who your teammates are, and you don't know who your, uh, who your enemies are. But you have some notion about how important you are in the overall scheme of things for your team to win a given round. And you play multiple rounds where you switch up the team, so it's not like there's persistent information. And you get some idea sometimes over what's going on over the course of a given round. But really, uh, the scoring system, I, I think, is, is one of the key problems. Because our game ended with someone having scored four times. And that seems to be about right, given the distribution of score tokens. They range from two to four. And... In that, in that structure, given that there's one card that allows you to 
steal a scoring token, <laughs> which that successful player had successfully played twice. I, I'm left a little bit dubious as to how much room there is for clever play or, or, or maneuvering. Yeah, tons of take that. I'm sure fans of Werewolf or that type of game where that sort of just crazy deduction and 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 is it though post- i don't know because in werewolf in werewolf everything is talking werewolf i would put in that first category the resistance and secret hitler where it's all about talking reasoning inference why did you do this who's doing this that, or the other they look shifty they look dodgy you don't do any of that in night yeah, but there's no real information well yes there are you can then have a further discussion. I said this was a very, very blunt True. distinction, right? You can then have a, a discussion about which games offer more substantial information versus other. But Night of the Ninja, players don't reveal any, really any information, really. They just play cards, and the cards True. tell them what, what to do. And there was some talk about it at the end of the game where there is some sort of s- strategy on which cards to draft yep. and when to play them. Yep. And because there are shinobi cards that not only let you look... Well, there's a type of card that lets you look, but you don't get to do anything about it. But there's one that lets you Those look. get executed early in the round. Yeah, so so my thought during the game was, well, why take those when I can take cards that will let me look and then do something about it? Well, that's, like you said, because they come later, and if you're already dead, then you don't get to play them. Yeah, no, so so there's room for choice. There absolutely is. So for the, the specific phenomenon that Walker's talking about is there are cards that give you information and don't let you act on it. And then there are cards that happen later in the round that let you murder people. And then there's the card that happens last in the round, which lets you look at somebody and then decide whether or not you want to murder them. Those are obviously the best cards. The problem is you need to survive to the end of the round. So so let's say that I played one of those blindly kill someone uh, cards. And it's it. I, I'm looking at who to kill, and I notice that Walker has got two face down cards in front of him, the same two cards he drafted at the top of the round. I can infer that he's got some murdering to do later on in the round because those are the only cards left to execute. So I might as well kill him. You might as well, but you have no information about who I am, but yes. you might as well just kill yep. me just because. Yeah, because you're a threat. <laughs> yeah, there's a fair amount of that. Yeah, yeah. Not not, not for me. <laughs> yeah, Walker is, uh, I think it's fair to say, generally, social deduction is not your preferred genre of game. Uh, and Night of the Ninja was definitely not your f- style of social deduction. Well, long ago, I owned, I owned a game called Shinobi Clans. Mm-hmm. And it had the same sort of feel, but at least you sort of had, you sort of got a little bit more inference because people started playing a bunch of cards at a certain area. So you, you, you could make, you could think that they're trying to protect that particular person or they're trying to kill that person. But at least you had ideas. There's weapons and it just seemed a lot more interesting. Okay. I'm going to have to go back to it because a friend of mine still owns a copy. Louis still has a copy. So we should give that a try. I'd like, I'd like to see how it aged. Sure. That was Night of the Ninja by Justin Gary and Brotherwise Games. I think and we should go right into the Resistance absolutely. after that. Because right after the get, we played Night of the Ninja, we played the Resistance right after. And I think this is my same problem that I have with, with trading and negotiation games. Because it's the same sort of thing. <laughs> I have information. Uh-huh. I try to explain this information to people. They won't go for it. And I really just don't feel like sitting there and trying to convince them of the fact. I, I would I would like to point out I I respect your not wanting to go and convince them of that fact. I was asking lots of questions over the course of our game of the resistance. I do not recall you ever trying to pitch a certain vision of the world. You mean, oh, you mean I said from the beginning that it was Huey, Dewey, and you the whole time. I said it over and over again. Uh, Huey did a fantastic job. He made the game for me. If it wasn't for his fantastic, oh, he did a wonderful act, job. Yeah. On being a good guy, I, I I did not suspect him even for a moment. But 
uh, Dewey and you, I knew from the beginning. I told everyone from the beginning that it was the two of you. And I got sick of trying to tell them that and convince them. They would not listen. And so that is the resistance. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Uh, To my mind, the resistance remains the greatest social direction game ever designed. It is in my top 20. I am a massive fan. I will play any day of the week. It is intense. It is logic-driven. It is also social-driven. And I respect the fact, Walker, that when it comes to trying to convince a group of people at a table to do a given thing, that is not your your ideal kind of game. That's cool. Thank you for having played it. It's definitely, it was definitely my best play of the Resistance. That's okay. Sure. Well, that's something. We did play with the Merlin and Avalon promos. Did, did we, though? D- not really. Yeah. The thing- <laughs> so, for those of you not in the know, the, Mer- the Merlin character knows the secret identities of everybody at the table. But if they are found out, then that causes an auto-win for the spies, the bad guys. And in this case... As sometimes happens, the pressure on Louis, who was Merlin, uh, was so internalized that he basically refused to act on his superior information, except occasional votes, like reconstructing his voting patterns ex post facto, we might have been able to make an inference about who Merlin was. But past that, he was so afraid of being found out, he didn't really contribute much to the group discussion, which is fine. I Overall, I would rather play without Merlin and the assassin. People generally prefer it. The, my salient problem with the Merlin assassin module is that in the worst of scenarios, it can just cause a flat, you know, 25-ish percent chance randomly of a good win being reversed for no reason. Uh, but as it is... Yeah, because it's happened, I don't know if it is twice, but it's happened before. We're at the end of the game, before the the person has a chance to say, okay, the Merlin player flips over his cards, ah, we won, and I was Merlin. There's that too. No, 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 that's not even what I'm talking about. I I was a little too harsh. I kept emphasizing, all right, when the game is over, everyone shut up. (laughs) No one say anything. But uh, no, I was referring to the case that if you're the assassin and you have no clue, you still have a one in four chance in a seven player game of being right and completely reversing the game. And given that the, the resistance is albeit imbalanced in favor of the spies, but it is purely deterministic. I don't like that introduction. It feels like an anticlimax to me, honestly. Interesting. I think it's all right though. For if you have a lot of new players, it might be. Some again. Well, it depends. It, it really depends on preference. Like yes, a lot of new players like having Merlin around. Uh, but a lot of new players also, they would rather Merlin exist and not be them. <laughs> True. But you can't run it that way. Yeah. And so if you're going to play with new players, the new player might be Merlin, and it's super hard to be Merlin. Anyway. Agreed. I do love the Resistance, though. I will happily play it in any configuration by Don Eskrich, Indie Boards and Cards, originally published in 2009. All right, lastly for me, Uprising, Curse of the Last Emperor. We talked to about it at the very, very beginning of the show, during the pa-pa-pa, more on that in a moment. But this is a cooperative troops on a map game. So it sort of replaced level seven for me because I enjoy sort of, you know, sprawling troops on a map. And this is, you get to team up with... Level seven invasion. Uh, level seven invasion. You get to team up with your friends and sort of stop the chaos coming from the outside, trying to stream into the center and the the empire in the middle trying to destroy, you know, you, the uprising sort of tribes. There's right now, there are... Eight different factions you can choose from. 
they all play very differently. We played a three-player game, and immediately right after that, I went upstairs and played two-handed, another entire game of Uprising. I just really enjoy it. The every the, all the factions are very different and they play very differently. The but like I said earlier, you can have very bad turns because you're flipping up random tiles which is going to spawn skeletons and spawn stuff, which pandemically, if they, you have too many skeletons, they explode into more giant monsters. And then you battle those monsters and the dice don't go well. But be saying that when you have a good turn, it makes those good turns that much better because, you know, you succeed, you've destroyed that monster, you get the benefit, you've pushed them back. And then anyway, enjoy everything about Uprising. There's a, a second Kickstarter that's fulfilling very soon. That's going to add more cards that make it more uh, cooperative, like cards that will let you trade easier or move your troops in between each other better, I believe. I think they're going to be cards that you start the game with, more feats. but More than just the two feet that people normally start with? Correct. Okay. An extra foot. It has been commented before by some other listeners that in recent memory, they can't think of a game that has created more difference of opinion between the two of us than Uprising Curse of the Last Emperor, because I, I loathed Uprising. Granted, I only played it the once, but my strong impression was that you do all this 4 xy stuff, you know, the income, the building, the, the maintenance stuff, and then you buy the troops, and you can play perfectly in the first round, and the dice are so determinative that you can just get wiped out. And the best you can hope to do is fight on maybe even odds in some cases and in most in, in lots of games that's fine that that just shows you shouldn't have fought you should have waited and and but in this case if you wait then you would have lost your your only stronghold and been wiped off the map so you had to fight and you do everything you can and there's a single unmodified pitch of the dice true but there on, you on go. Subsequent plays, I think maybe we had started the large monsters right next to our havens, which is your home territory. And I'm, I don't think there's actually cards that say you have to do that. Mostly it's, you get to play some anywhere in area. Maybe it was our first game. We thought we'd play some close because that's where your main troop starts. We said, Oh, we'll put it right beside. I confess I don't remember the details. Yeah, I knew the do I, but I'm just saying from more plays, I, I don't, there might be one card that might place it right next to your haven, but there are not many and sort of gaming out where that where they're going to go you don't want them too far away because the longer they're on the board the more points they're going to get it's a game where you have to score more points than the two enemies lots of interesting like like all different types of trains that give you different bonuses so you're trying to sometimes you're trying to lure certain monsters to certain trains because you you're going to get a big benefit from that you get to build towers and walls anyway i really enjoy it uprising Curse of the Last Emperor, designed by Cornelius Kremen, Powell Mazur, and Derek Summer, and put out by Nemesis Games. Those are the games we played last week. And now, a word from our sponsor. This episode is brought to you by the Spring Cleaning Champions, Manscaped. This season, make sure to groom your carpets and the drapes with the leaders in below-the-waist grooming. Clear out that winter bush with Manscaped's Lawnmower 5.0 and watch your confidence bloom like the springtime flowers. Embrace the season and join the 10 million men worldwide who trust Manscaped with our special offer. Go to manscaped.com and use code SOWRONGGAMES for 20% off plus free shipping. Whether you're looking to craft your signature look or clean up that neckline, Manscaped has the right tools for the job. Introducing the season's champ, the Lawnmower 5.0 Ultra. 
It features two interchangeable next-gen skin-safe blade heads, dual LED spotlights, and sleevers rejoice, it's waterproof and comes with a swank carrying case. Get 20% off and free shipping with the code SOWRONGGAMES at manscaped.com. That's 20% off and free shipping with the code SOWRONGGAMES at manscaped.com. Nothing like a little spring cleaning in your pants. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun? Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Now back to the show. On to the news and why it doesn't matter. Mark, this is episode 270. So we get to talk about our Patreon. So our Patreon is a place that you can come and have all sorts of different tiers if you think the content that we give is worth some money per month. And we have shows that have no ads, like you just heard. We have a Pledge of Indifference, where we talk about all the crowdfunding of the particular week. Mark does a fantastic show called Bloat, where he does a certain topic and talks about it. We have Sizzler, which is a uh, Spirit Island specialty show where where Sidewinder... Uh, Huey and Mark are playing through a bunch of harder and harder levels and how that's going for them. We, you'll be have access to our whole past library, which is our whole playthroughs of Pandemic and, and campaign systems where we've done shows on that and all our past stuff. Lots of stuff. You can even just go to the Patreon page just to see what's there. And if it's something that you like, then try it out. Oh, access to our Discord. Also very good. Yes, and indeed, over the course of the coming week, Partially in recompense for the fact that we skipped last week, we are going to be sharing on the main feed an episode or two of the Patreon-exclusive stuff from years past. So you're not going to get access to the current Patreon-exclusive episodes, and there will be two more in the coming week, at least, possibly even three. Uh, We tend to drown people in exclusive content, uh, uh, averaging in excess of one bonus episode a week. And we will be letting you give a, giving a sneak peek. Yeah, like a variety show of what our Patreon. A little offers. amuse-bouche. Just so. Maybe more like a poo-poo platter. Anyway, that's, that's enough. Yeah, <laughs> that's, that's enough idioms that's enough. that don't really agree with what's going on. Moving on, I would like to draw attention to a project on Kickstarter. It's called Wolves. This is by Coyote and Crow Games. This is uh, notable, I think, for two reasons. Number one, it's got a sort of shared 
competition mechanism that I've last seen in Tower of Babel. Every time I play Reiner Knizia's Tower of Babel, I talk about how it's got this weird cooperation thing in terms of building your own buildings, uh, but it, it has a, a, a cooperation in a competitive game that I haven't really seen duplicated. Wolves doesn't seem to be doing the same thing, but it's got a lot of the same vibe in terms of the overall structure of the game. In Wolves, you have to make sure that your own people survive, that they're that they're sufficiently well-fed, but you have an opportunity to share other share excess food with other people for the sake of additional prestige. Uh, additionally, this is being published by Coyote and Crow Games, who published Coyote and Crow, uh, an indigenous-focused role-playing game that was a very interesting project. And the people working on this project are of uh, ones from uh, of, of, from the Cherokee Nation. Another is from the Stolo and Inklapamak nations. Another is of Mohawk and Mexican indigenous heritage. Anyway, there's also an interesting pledge level where you can get a copy for yourself and also donate a copy. For uh, nice. the sake of cultural outreach, I have pledged for that level personally. I'm very much looking forward to Wolves by Coyote and Crow. You can find it on Kickstarter. Not the wolves. No, just wolves. Just wolves. Just wolves. Because we've yeah, just thought many, so many wolves. It's anyway, true. keep the heroes out. We've talked about it a lot. Very cute game. We do enjoy it. It's not, you know, the heaviest or the, you know, the greatest of games, but it's very light, very cute. They have a new Kickstarter coming out the 24th of October. There'll be new factions. There'll be an early bird faction. This is called Boss Battles. Looking forward to it. Always more. Uh, keep the heroes out. I am interested in. Right, will there be new adorable meeples? There are. There's going to be a unicorn. <laughs> that, that's, that's, that's the early bird one. I'm sold. There's going to be a Medusa. There's going to be a vampire. And there is going to be, oh, an Ogren. Is it Ogren? The two-headed ogre? Ogren? Uh, Etten. Etten. There'll Usually. be an, an Etten, it looks like. Not a lot of information yet, but keep the heroes out. Also on Kickstarter now is Shards of Infinity Saga. Now, we're big fans of Shards of Infinity. It's one of our favorite light deck builders. It's kind of an evolution of the Realms games, which in turn were an evolution of the Ascension system. Uh, I don't know what to think about Shards of Infinity Saga yet. I'll probably have more to say this week on Pledge of Indifference, because we're all, we've are all we already got several expansions in on Shards of Infinity. And uh, to their credit, I guess, Stone Shard Games is basically saying, no, 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 no upgrade pack, no transition. You either buy all the new stuff or nothing. There's no en route for, uh, for previous supporters other than, just for interests of, of the full context, a $10 off coupon. If you just send them a picture of you with your Shards of Infinity stuff. How about I send them a picture of me pitching it into the furnace? That's awful. That's that. Those are strong words, Walker. So <laughs> I, I'm going to have to set aside the time this week to really take a careful look at what they say is different, what they think is added, uh, because uh, I'm torn. It, it's a reasonable price for the amount of content that they're selling, but by the same token, a lot of it is kind of sort of almost duplicative with what I already have as a Shards of Infinity fan. If you don't have any Shards of Infinity yes. stuff and you like Realms games like that, absolutely, go hog wild. I, can't, I, I highly recommend the game. But Shards of Infinity Saga is currently on Kickstarter. I don't know if it's for me. All right. Wise Man once said, if the game is good enough, it'll be reprinted. Well, man, do we have a list of games for you today? I'll name them all off. We have a game that was called Gloomholden, which was a print-and-play game that is now going to be part of the uh, Gloomhaven Festival Festival Kickstarter. Uh, not Kickstarter, sorry, uh, on GameFound. So this game is called Gloomhaven Button and Bugs. This is by the uh, Gloomholden Joe 
Kemp Fell and Nikki Vallon. So it's going to be a totally produced version with some, you know, extra stuff of Gloom Holden. I'm looking forward to that one. Next up, we have Mark's, one of Mark's favorite games, El Grande by designer Wolf Wolfgang Kranger and Richard Ulrich. It is now going to get a new version by Lucky Duck Games. Mark, one I'm excited of. We have Calamala. Yes. Being designed by Fabio Lupiano. We're going to get a version with Ian O'Toole art, and it should be on Kickstarter later this year. Well, he is the only artist working in the industry, so. What What is it about these things that, they just bug me. It says, Kickstarter in Q3, later this year. But yeah, that, that's that's Q3. <laughs> I, 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 okay. I, okay. I don't know why we need both. Sure. Right. And finally for this one, I'm sure that we both love Tigers and Euphrates. Not very much information. There was a very early rumblings. Very early rumblings. There is going to be a reprint. We don't know by who of Tigers and Frades. Apparently, there there was a, a license. It has expired. It's been extended. Yep. It's it should be out soon, but they still won't tell us by who. Anyway, I'm interested. I'm very curious to see what's going to happen. So uh, the Federal Trade Commission, the FTC of the United States, is broadly speaking responsible for two areas of enforcement. One of them is antitrust law, and yes, you can stop laughing now. And the other is, broadly speaking, consumer protection. And I've commented about this a number of times in my editorials on Bloat and So Very Wrong About All the Games You Like Are Bad. In theory, it is legally required in the United States for media to disclose if they've gotten complimentary copies of something to review. And I've commented that in tech reviews and in a lot of other forms of media analysis, fulsome disclosure is very much the standard in a way that board game media has yet to catch up on. However, it's the case that the FTC has updated their guidance on endorsements and testimonials, and representatives of the FTC have, in response to questioning, have emphasized that, yes, that applies to board gaming too. So, if you get something for free, and if you so much as show it on social media, technically speaking, you're legally required to disclose that you got it for free. One of the things that Kellen Redtank from Board Game Barrage, Pod Boys for Life, has brought to our attention, and I've now been talking about since he, he, he brought it to my attention, is those con hall pictures you see. People say, I just got back in this call. Look at, look at this hall that I got. Well, frequently... For a lot of influencers, 80 plus percent of those are things they got for free. And so one of the things that when I'm feeling trollish, when I'm feeling particularly trollish on social media, which is not very frequently because I've, I've basically not been on Twitter for a very long time, is you then show up and say, well, which of these did you buy? And often the answer is, well, none of them. Well, now it's always been the case that technically you're supposed to disclose legally. Now there's probably no chance the FTC is actually going to enforce this rigorously. They don't tend to do that very much. But in theory, they could bring lawsuits. I, for one, am very pleased at the very least the promulgation of at least the expectations of what board game social media influencers should do. There was a comment in, in the, the, the article from Jamie Stegmeier about how in the past, Stonemeyer Games has basically been operating under a good faith assumption that reviewers will disclose when they've gotten review copies, which for what it's worth, I think is reasonable, but now he is considering being a little bit more proactive in terms of encouraging their media partners to disclose, which I think would also be for the good. So I feel like this, this movement, this desire on the part of community and on the part of consumers to have better and more consistent disclosure 
with respect to contacts with publishers and when they've gotten stuff for free has been growing. And I, for one, can only think it will redound to the benefit of everyone involved. You might think, what does the FTC have to do with us? We're in Canada. Well, I'm not sure about people that are not in Canada, but there is a the Canadian Cooperation Agreement, which uh, brings Canada into line to everything that FTC does. Just so you know. And also, if you broadcast on American platforms to American audiences, you might still be on the hook. So, <laughs> All right. Next up, Carnegie was a game that came on Board Game Arena before it was even on Kickstarter. So Quinted Games has a new project coming up called Stupor Monday. This is designed by Nestor Mangone. And like I said, it's going to be by Quinted Games. And it's also going to be on Board Game Arena before the Kickstarter even starts. Well, wait, it's not because it's not on Board Game Alpha because I wouldn't, not, be, I wouldn't be able to talk about it if, if it was. If it were an alpha, you're not, you wouldn't be able to mention it. Right, exactly. Right, right. exactly. So hypothetically. I've, I've realized that's not why I'm getting my check. Not that I'm going to check <laughs> because I talk about it anyway, whether I get the check or not. So why would they send me a check if I'm I've, just going to continually talk about games that I'm board gaming? Anyway. I've been, I've been saying that for years, Walker. <laughs> so anyway, uh, what does uh, Supor Monday mean? Well, Frederick II, Ro- uh, Holy Roman Emperor, King of Germany and King of Italy, was a man of extraordinary culture, energy, and ability. Uh, wait, this was before Germany and Italy existed. Well, um, okay, sorry, <laughs> sorry to so interrupt. His, so his contemporaries referred to him as well, where Italy and Germany are at the moment. Sure, 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 okay. sure. Uh, referred to him as Stupor Monday, which is Latin for the wonder of the world. Oh, so that is what Stupor Monday is all about. That's not when it's Monday morning and you can't really get out of bed. No, not okay. when you're in a stupor. Yeah, you're not yeah, in a that, stupor. That, 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 that's what I'm thinking. And lastly, I thought I said I was going to talk about uh, Blitzkrieg, 20 Minutes. This is a game called Dogfight, Rule the Skies in 20 Minutes. This is also technically from PSC Games, but not anymore. But it's not designed by Palomori like the other two. This is designed by Carlo A. Rossi. And there's been something going on with PSC Games. I'm not sure if it's a sister company or they've sold the rights, but now all the 20-minute games like Blitzkrieg and Caesar and this new dogfight game have been moved over to a company called Floodgate Games. What that means, who knows? But coming out soon, dogfight, rule the skies in 20 minutes. Yeah, I confess when I was initially super excited about dogfight and then I saw it was not designed by Paolo Mori and then it immediately went to the I don't really care column. Understood. And that's the news and why it doesn't matter. Now on to the main review of the week, which is Raw. So Raw. 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 Designed by Reiner Knizia, initially published by Alia Games in 1999. It has seen many different re-editions. It's even seen a card game variant that was popular about 15 years ago called Razia. And <sighs> there's, a, there, there's a kind of an old saw, which is... Everyone acknowledges that the greatest auction game was designed by Reiner Knizia. The only question is, which auction game by Reiner Knizia is the greatest auction game? Uh, for what it's worth, Raw is my favorite. And uh, I do I even have to go through like a, 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 a brief sort of history of Reiner Knizia's publications? Like, he's designed a lot of great stuff. Even if you don't like his designs, he's designed a lot of influential stuff. Fair enough. And the edition that I have is the 2005 Uberplay version, for what it's worth. Most recently, it was published by 25th Century Games in a lavish and very brightly colored edition by the only working artist in the board game industry, namely Eno Tool. And it came in a 
thick, chunky, tile-based version, as well as a more standard retail cardboard-based version for those of you that would rather not pay upwards of $100 for an auction game. Walker, why don't you give us an unhelpful summary about what one does in Raw? All right, so you see there's this chicken. And Mark, you know, we like our eggs sunny side up, but uh-huh. this chicken wants all of our sons. So he brings the bird flu, he corrupts our youth to commit crime, he floods our crops, brings the earthquakes... It's a whole thing. <laughs> for context, so, and for you Egyptian mythology nerds that are now ripping your hair out, we refer to the raw piece as the chicken. So raw is just a straight up bidding game. It's all about bidding. There's no side game. There's no deck building. It is just bidding all the time. Well, it's also it's bidding in conjunction with press your luck. True. Right? Because, yes, all you do is bid, but by the same token, you also decide to see how far you can press your economic advantage or even disadvantage by virtue of playing chicken with the chicken. Yeah, but the press your luck part, there is a little bit... So we'll get into it, but that, we'll get that, into that, it. that part of press your luck, I feel, is sometimes you are you end up being the last person in the round. That, I can see, is being press your luck. The other press your luck during the game when everyone's still in the round is, only, is pretty much just trying to force someone to start a bid. Sure, except for the fact that... And this is the key genius that separates Raw from Razia and a lot of other auction games, except for the fact that sometimes you can turn an amazing set of tiles into a pile of garbage by adding one more tile. In that sense, it's also press your luck, right? If you're in a position and you're looking at a group of tiles, you say, that is a bunch of things that I would like to buy. That is a bunch of things that I would be willing to pay for based on the money that I have, because you cannot make change. More on this later. Sometimes adding more tiles to that lot is a great idea because it means that you're just getting more when you were already willing to pay. And sometimes it means you've ruined your board position entirely. <laughs> it, means, it means you shouldn't have pushed your luck. Precisely. You have, decided, so, you have chosen unwisely. Yes. In other words, it is the kind of game that can reward occasional conservatism, which I think is one of the definitional elements of what constitutes a push-your-luck game. So yes, this game only lasts for three rounds, and let's do... Let's talk about, I have no, I had no idea how to break this up. Let's talk about the bidding tokens. So there's this standard set of bidding tokens that everyone has at the beginning of the game. It doesn't change. It goes from one to 13 in a four player game. And everyone has a certain, the certain set. In both three and four player game, actually it goes one to 13. Okay. So it's all about knowing what your opponents have left, like what bidding tokens they have left. Because if you have higher numbers, you just know that you can outbid them and they know that you can outbid them. So whether they push their luck or not, or whether they call a bid because they just don't want to add more tiles to what they know you're just going to win anyway. And also knowing when it's good to upgrade those tokens, because when you win a bid, you trade that token for the one that won the last bid. So if someone's, you know, paid 13 for the last one, there might be some, you know, even though you're only going to win one tile, switching your number one for a 13 is sometimes very advantageous. Yes. So I, I can I can respect the fact that you don't know how to break this down because I, I actually did a, a video review of Raw a few years ago, and I think that Raw is one of the hardest games to review because let me compare it to say Tigers and Euphrates, right? I don't think Raw is the best game ever made. I think Tigers and Euphrates is the best game ever made, but Tigers and Euphrates is 
of sufficient complexity that I know how to crawl in and start pointing out various bits. I'm not saying that I'm in a position to second-guess or analyze Knizia's designs because I have such a keen mind for game design. That's not my claim. My claim is that I have roots of entry because I can talk about the structure, I can talk about what's going on. Raw is so simple and brilliant that it's almost impossible, I think, almost impossible to do anything other than just point to it and go, yeah, there it is. I mean... Play it. Raw. <laughs> raw. 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 So, so there are some things, though, that I can say. One of them is this this uh, uh, manipulation of the sun tokens, which are your currency. As I said before, you can't make change. And that really, sometimes restriction is what gives rise to interesting game decisions. You know, a given set of tiles comes up and you'd probably be willing to pay about nine for it. You don't have a nine. You've got a 13. You've got a six. What do you bid? <laughs> do you bid the six and expect uh, that there's a solid chance you might get outbid? Or do you bid the 13 knowing that you overpaid? Well, a lot of that depends on what other people are sitting on, what you've been sitting on before, what time it is in the middle of the round. All of this managed by how very many, simple. How many raw tokens are out? How many? Exactly. What, the, the timing of the round overall, which round it is. And the other thing is about, you know, changing the, the, the overall economy of your own position by virtue of swapping the sun tiles. A lot of people... Quite rightly, you know, look at that 13 and say, oh, trading one for a 13 is a great idea. However, I would just like to point out that given the overall tempo of Raw, I find it very difficult to play well if I'm sitting on high sun values. If a round starts and I've got, say, a 9, a 10, and a 13, I know I'm in for a rough time. Because the problem is, since you can't make change, it's hard to look at a set of tiles and think that any of them are worth, you know, the best bids in the game. On the other hand, if you're if a round starts and I've got a one, a two, and a six, I know that I've got smooth sailing because everything's worth a one. I can just call auctions all day long and make other people overpay well, just so I don't underpay. Yeah, I was supposed to say that's that's the big part of the game is looking around and seeing what tokens you have. Yeah. I see you with a nine, ten, and thirteen. I'm calling bids every time it <laughs> every it, time it comes to me because yes. that means either you're just letting it go over and over again because you're not going to pay nine for one to two tiles. Right. And yeah, it's uh the, the the psychological angst of these difficult decisions is so pressing precisely because of those restrictions. You can only win three sets of auctions per round, maximum nine sets of tiles over the course of the game. Frequently over the course of the game, someone will not win all nine sets. And sometimes that's even the right call. <laughs> and Knowing that everyone else is refusing to let the economy mesh well with your, your buying power it's it's marvelous and such a subtle dance. On your turn, you can only do one of two things, basically. Pull a tile or call an auction. It's such atomic simplicity, but there's so much psychology and pushing your luck and economic evaluation far more than just the simple blunt, well, this is probably going to shake out to be four points, therefore I guess it's going to be worth uh, my paying you know, anything three points or less. Like Chinatown, for example. I realize that Raw isn't a negotiation game, but the economy of Chinatown I always find so uninteresting because it's also fixed and determinate. The variability of Raw, the uncertainty in Raw, doesn't lead to more chaotic results. It leads to more interesting decision-making. And I'd like to emphasize, just for what it's worth, a lot of people think that Raw is a luck fest. I don't think so. Raw is an incredibly deterministic game in the sense that higher skill will tend to prevail over lower skill in the long run, far more than a lot of other games. I think so. That, that pans out in tournaments, right? You you know what I mean? You have the skilled players winning the tournaments. You don't have 
you know, new newbies coming into Winter Right. Because just to analogize to another game designed by Rainer Knizia, not of the same caliber and certainly far more luck determinant, but in Beowulf the Legend, the reason why it is less luck-driven than I think a lot of people give regard for is that the smart players will know when they can afford to take the risks in the first place. And they have a better sense of what the parameters are of a successful risk and a failed risk. Similarly in Raw, the conservative experience player might know to stop pressing their luck even though they could probably get more tiles out on this play because they don't want to risk pulling out that disaster that's going to cost them five points and they, they're willing to take their losses and run. All right, to finish up on these sun tiles, I think we'll just talk about the final scoring because at the, at the end of the game, the end of the final round, I should say, you're going to, whoever has the highest total uh, sun points out of tokens that they've uh, cycled out through winning auctions that round whoever has the highest total is going to get five points i feel you know i want to put context on the five points i think would you say 30 points at the end of the game is maybe average like just give some sort of context yeah that's for five points is a lot yes yeah, five points say, a lot. Yes. so that whole strategy where i was talking about later where uh because every time a, a chicken or raw tile is pulled <laughs> it it starts an auction whether that person wanted it to or not and there could be no tiles in the offering but there could be a high number sitting there from the last auction. And so you might bid on no tiles in order just to cycle out your two for a 10 in order to get that five points at the end of the game. Especially if the round's about to end. Because when the round ends, it ends precipitously. That's that's the classic sort of Russian roulette vision of Raw. Only one player is left in the round because everyone else has already bought all their sets of tiles. And they want to try to get the best set of tiles available. But they know that with every pull, they could either be making the set worse with a disaster. Or they might be ending the round prematurely. In which case, they get absolutely nothing. And it's great. And that tension further informs your previous buys. Right When you know that you can only buy one more set of tiles, that, that's another point of pressure on deciding whether or not to buy something. And all these simple rules generate an incredibly sophisticated context that inform all your buying decisions. So I get the same feeling raw as I do in Skull. Every time it's my turn in Skull, I almost always call a bid. <laughs> sure. And figuring out what that, that initial bid is, is... The, the fun I find in Skull, like whether, mm. whether I usually don't, you know, if I'm the second player, I usually don't call it then, but if it's gone once around, seeing how many tiles are out and trying to figure out that key number to start the bid at yep. is the sort of feeling I get in Raw. When it's my turn to place a tile, am I just feeding the person that has the highest bid token more tiles or do I call it now to give them less of a choice? Because they want the tiles that are there. Already, why give them more tiles? Why not just call the bid now, give them what's there, and not free tiles? And of course, that is a tactic that is very, very successful. But if it is abused or done poorly, not that, not that you do, but if it is abused or done poorly, the rest of the table can just call your bluff, pass, and make you buy the tiles whether you wanted to or not. Because if you call an auction voluntarily and everyone else passes, you're obliged to purchase what's there. So in some cases, I've seen that backfire. <laughs> Usually it's pretty easy to calculate and, and, and do properly. So let's talk about the tiles next. So why are you trying to collect these tiles? Because there's all sorts of different sets you're going to get. You're going to set some monuments. You want to get pharaoh tiles the most every round because you're going to get uh, five points if you have the most. You want at least to get a sieve tile because if you don't have a sieve tile, then you're going to lose five points. And then there's gods that, that you uh, – they're 
two, two, points, two each. points each at the end, but you can use them when it's your turn to start a bid or play a tile to just take a tile out of the offering. Kind of handy. Thoth so, takes what Thoth wants. And then there are these, like Mark said, there are three different kinds of bad tiles, like earthquakes that are going to destroy monuments, plagues or floods that are going to destroy, you know, your the crop little scoring mechanism you have. Or, there, are, there are four kinds or, of disasters, but yeah. Four earthquakes. Anyway, bad tiles that will destroy two of your tiles that you have because there are some tiles you're going to keep every round and some tiles that are just going to score and then you throw them away. So let, let me ask you a question about, since we're talking about the, the, the scoring elements, one of the key differences between different editions that have been published is how they manage this information because the scoring conditions of the tiles, given the simplicity of everything else in RAW, are one of the most complicated elements in terms of the rules. Now, the edition that I've got, the Uberplay edition, has uh, little player aids on each corner of the board. So you, if you can't remember how many points a god is worth, you can just go look and it'll tell you. For a long time, uh, people have asserted that it is impossible to play Raw without a player aid. Usually presented as a sort of mat or board where you would then arrange your tiles in some kind of way. I have never felt this to be true. If it is the case that, so the Aldi edition had one copy of the player aid printed, the Uberplay edition had two copies. So long as the scoring summary is easily available, I don't think you need a mat to organize all, you don't need to put a step pyramid on the faded out printed picture of the step pyramid and organize all your tiles that way. Uh, what, what is your position? You know, on the I, I would agree that I think that's just too much table bloat. And I, I agree. Think, I, think I agree. What we played was what you need. Yes. So if you have an edition and there are some, that have no scoring references, sure, have scoring references available. And also I would point out, and this is something that the 25th Century Games Edition, which is very lovely and functional in a lot of ways, it doesn't have on the scoring reminders a reminder of how many tiles are in the tile mix, and which I find a useful reminder as well. And the other thing I didn't like was I, I enjoyed, I think almost every edition that I played, is that you're filling up a raw track with the raw tiles. From yes. A, from a video I saw on the 25th edition, you're not. You're just throwing the tile away and moving this this marker along yes. a track. And yes. I don't think I like that at all. I I am not really in a position to comment too much about the specifics of the 24th century edition because I've been playing the same edition for almost 20 years. And I really like the Franz Vowinkel art. He did the art for the Ali edition and the Uberplay edition. The Uberplay edition is, is only different in that it is larger. There's a, there's a certain simple, understated, iconic element to those tiles that I really, really appreciate. So yes, when I played the 25th century edition, which I played twice, I thought it looked garish. But I, we're talking about an understated art palette to a far more vibrant color, and I'm really not in a position to comment. I'm just so used to what I'm used to, and I like it so much that I think it may just be a knee-jerk reaction. But I agree with you, that was one of the things to which I had a knee-jerk reaction. It's different, and I don't like it. <laughs> That's right. But that having been said, I just want to emphasize, it's in print again. That's great. <laughs> Until, of course, this copy, th this edition sells out in five hot seconds, and then we'll need a reprint Kickstarter. Agreed. Well, several, when I was reading into this, several people and or other creator said there's the Pharaoh strat. I was wondering if you thought that this was a problem that just always bid on Pharaohs. Pharaohs are the only way to win. What? Must have Pharaohs. Yeah. I, I, I mean, thought Pharaohs was, are good. I, but... I, I didn't understand it either, but apparently <laughs> several people said this is like the tournament strategies. Like people that win tournaments okay. are, are, are convinced that this is because if you have the most Pharaohs, that's five points, three rounds, 15 points. That's half your points. 
plus right, what but, anything else but it's, you're scoring. But it's something you constantly have to defend. I, I, look, I, I mean, I, I'm not saying this. Okay, Mark. okay. I'm just wondering. So you're on the same page as me. I don't think it's a thing. I, uh, it, look, it may be a thing. If you're a tournament player, if you've played hundreds of games and you're in it to win and you want that trophy, maybe. I don't know. I'm not that player. I played Raw 75 times or so. And yeah, sometimes if you get an early lead in Pharaohs, that's great. That's going to be 15 points over the course of the game. But I've seen people score more points from Monuments. Because the ceiling on monuments is much higher than 15 points. And you play that game and say, oh, well, monuments are the way to go. Well, kind of. It depends on which ones you win and at what cost. If you win a couple of early pharaohs, they could be worth 15 points or they could be worth zero based on what other people do and what other pharaohs come up. And if you win pharaoh majority in round one, you have to defend it in round two. I, I, I don't know. Yeah, I would agree. I just, like I said, I, when, I, when I was reading, it came up. Okay. All right. Lastly, I just want to talk about the sort of fun, interesting thing that can happen because you only have the three tokens. You only, you only have the opportunity to win three auctions and there are chances that everyone will be out of the round and one person will be left. And there are, uh, on the offering track, there's room for eight tiles. And then, like we said, depending on how many raw tokens, once that track fills, which is based on number of players, that round automatically ends. So then you have this very fun where people want you to fail but want you to succeed sort of uh, round where you're just constantly trying to fill up the track as much as possible pushing your luck like do i need that one tile where bad things can happen either a you're going to draw a raw tile or b you're going to draw one of those devastation tiles that's going to make that whole offering obsolete fun times when that happens it's a spectacle just it's, so. it's it's it has drama and spectacle which you seldom find in auction games Right. Sometimes an auction game is like, well, I bid fifty four, I bid fifty five, I bid fifty six. Okay, I pass. All right, I take my stuff. Sure, and that's fine. And I love lots of games like that. Medici, for example, is often a game like that, and that's another great auction game by Renner Knizia. Modern Art is often like that. But there's something about that last player left in raw, looking looking at the bag, looking at the track, thinking, okay, I've only you know, if this is a raw tile, my round's over. But uh, true, and people get so mad because they've they've paid 13 for like three tiles <laughs> this this person yes is is got has their two sun left yes and they filled the track yes. and are getting like incredible points it, for two and you you've spent so ah. it's marvelous there, there's actually a parallel between the economy of raw and people's success in finding monogamous mates. I've elaborated about this elsewhere. I'm not going to go into the details again, but it's 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 very interesting from uh, the economics of choice and a variety of other elements. I, I will raise one other element of, of discussion in the raw community, and that is the player count. So we've been talking mostly about four and five player games because when you play with three players, you have four sons and you can buy four lots. Uh, there are a lot of people, this is kind of like the El Grande discussion, but but to a lesser extent, there are a lot of people who will assert that Raw is best with three. I'm inclined to agree for what it's worth. But there's a subset of those people that will then assert that playing with four or playing with five is not worth doing. I am not in that camp. I will point out the following, however. Uh, Raw can also be played with two, and it is shockingly good. <laughs> it's not my preferred player count. Again, it's probably my least preferred player count. My, my preference probably goes three, then four, then five, then two. But I would still happily play Raw with two. It is very different at each player count. When you're playing with three, you have a lot more control over the game, both in terms of what tiles hit the board and in terms of what you buy, because you can buy more often. When you're playing with five, you have to be willing to take those 
awful purchases more often. You have to be willing to to take that hit. Remember the example I gave before. You'd be willing to pay about a nine, but you've only got the six and the twelve. When you're playing with five players, you will overpay for things a lot. But that's how you just have to do it that way. You have less control over the game, and that's okay. I understand why people don't want to play a raw with five. I see it because it's a very different feeling game at that point. But it is still something that I think is absolutely maintains the genius of the economy. You're just feeling a little bit more of that pressure. And so I, I just wanted to acknowledge the fact that some people do not want to play Raw with more than three. And the fact that I do, but nonetheless, I have to consciously play differently when I do. Do you have any uh, experience with Raw the Dice Game? I do. I played Raw the Dice Game. I played Priests of Raw. And uh, Raw the Dice Game was like an early... In many ways, Knizia kind of anticipated roller rights in terms of the fundamental structure of, you know, roll some dice, maybe push your luck a little bit while rolling the dice, and then score some points based on a kind of a spreadsheety thing. Despite all its set set collection elements of scoring in Raw, I never really feel like it's re- reducible to a spreadsheet type experience, whereas Raw the Dice Game, I feel that a little bit more. And Priests of Raw is was a a, a weird uh, offshoot where all the tiles were double-sided and some tiles were different on one side or the other, like buildings would come in colors and you might pull a green-red building tile and you get to decide whether it's going to hit the auction track as a green building or a red building. It was an interesting variant and I enjoyed playing it a bunch of times as somebody who's played Raw a bunch, but it is not as good. The fundamental tile mix, that's, that's how Priests of Raw differs. The fundamental tile mix was not as compelling to me. And that is the Raw universe. Raw. Raw. You should play Raw. If you haven't played Raw, you should try Raw. Yeah, I was, I was very surprised that we had not reviewed it yet. Uh, again, I find it super hard to review Raw. It's just so fundamentally simple and brilliant. I don't feel like I have a lot of ways to crawl in and yeah. point anything out. And it's just sound, right? So there's not much to like... <laughs> you know what I mean? There's not much to like critique or... Or, you know, say this this part is not good or fiddly or, you know, it's just solid. Yeah, yeah, yeah. absolutely. So that's going to do it for this week. Thank you very, very much for joining us for So Very Wrong About Games. You'll be hearing from us again later on in the week if you're either a patron or even if you're not a patron. And please do spend some time with us then. You can find all our contact information at sowronggames.com slash contact and we will read everything you send us. Thanks again for joining us and we hope to see you again soon. Peace! You've been listening to So Very Wrong About Games, produced by Michael Walker and edited by Mark Bigney. Special thanks goes to What Does It Eat for generously allowing us to use their most excellent song, FOS, as our theme. You can find them at whatdoesiteat.com. You can reach us by email at soverywrongaboutgames at gmail.com or on Twitter at sowronggames. Thanks very much. See you next time, and always, try to be right, but remember you are so very wrong.